pleasure to be asked to speak and to share a small thought. And uh, just for a few minutes, I want to turn our attention to Psalm 31. Uh, if you've ever read any of the Psalms, you'll be familiar with David talking, often lamenting to God in prayer uh, over his enemies. And in many of the chapters in the book, uh, these are the three characters. And the small slot that I've been given, I want to examine two of them, David and God. So first, I'll just read Psalm 31, the first 15 verses. And says, In thee, O Lord, do I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in thy righteousness. Bow down thine ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be thou my strong rock, for a house of defence to save me. For thou art my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for my name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net that thou have laid privily for me, for thou art my strength. Into thine hand I commit my spirit, for thou hast redeemed me, O Lord, God of truth. For I have hated them that regard lying vanities, but I put trust in the Lord. I will be glad and rejoice in thy mercy, for thou hast considered my trouble. Thou hast known my soul and adversities, and hast not shut me up into the hand of the enemy. Thou hast set my feet in a large room. Have mercy upon me, O Lord, for I am in trouble. Mine eyes consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. For my life is spent with grief, and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity, and my bones are consumed. I was reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among members. And I feared mine acquaintance. They that did see me without fled from me. I am forgotten as a dead man out of mind. I am like a broken vessel. For I have heard the slander of many. Fear was on every side. While they took counsel together against me. They devised to take away my life. But I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. My time in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies. And from them that persecute me throughout the week uh whenever uh ross asked me to share we thought uh this was the wee phrase that came to mind uh when i was thinking about what to share that the lord laid in my heart i was just simply the last uh little verse there verse 15 my times are in thy hand i just want to spend a few minutes uh sharing a few thoughts with you back to verse one I want you to notice how David begins. Uh, he begins by saying, Thee, I put my trust. Firstly, he prays. The whole psalm, like many other, is the prayer penned by David. He acknowledges that his complete confidence is in Christ. And this is repeated twice more in the rest of the chapter, which would be an indication of how reliant David was in God when things got tough. Look at who he gives the preeminence to. Who is at the front of his mind? The one David is drawn to in distress. If we draw that out a little, although it doesn't say this at the first thing uh, that he did, I want to ask the question, what or who would you or I have turned to in a situation like this? Would you have turned to God or would you have turned to him first? Or maybe you would have tried other avenues first. I'm reminded of that old hymn we often sing, uh, What a Friend We Have in Jesus, and the line in it, uh, of each verse, it says, Take it to the Lord in prayer. We further see David once in the verses that follow. Uh, David makes God number one in his life, and we we'll see this in verse three, where he says, uh, he asks God and to guide him. And then again, this is reinforced in verse five, where he says, Into thine hand 
I commit my spirit. This conveys his complete and utter dependence on God. There are many things that David says in this passage which have been a great encouragement to me, uh, but probably the most reassuring is found in verse 14 to 15, which is where I'd like to draw your attention to briefly. After laying out the predicament that he finds himself in, which was in verses 6 to 13, and the threat he faces from his enemies, look at his response. He says, but I trusted in thee, O Lord. I said, thou art my God. What a lovely response. Even after uh, all that he's been through and he's reminded of it, he still has that same trust uh, that we saw in verse 1. I wonder what you would say. Uh, if you were in this situation, whether your trust would be in God, David's trust was uh, through it. The others aren't sure entirely um, what he was facing, although we know uh, it was some sort of warfare and the siege of a city, and that the psalmist offers false accusations. Next, I want to look at the God David came to with his problem, and the same God that you and I have uh, if we were one of his children. Verse 15 says, My times are in thy hand. Deliver me from the hand of mine enemies and from them that persecute me. And he's saying, My times are in hand. David was highlighting that not only are they at the disposal of God, but they're also arranged in him too. The creator of heaven and earth has placed us in the situation we're in right now and will give us the grace and strength to get through it. Where could we be safer but in the hands of a seed? We used to sing an old hymn uh, in Sainfield, uh, Safe in the Arms of Jesus. And surely this assurance that our times are in the hand of God ought to draw us near to him as we rest in this blessed thought. With our time in God's hands, nothing is left to chance or put down to luck or to good fortune, but all things are ordained by God. And what a marvellous thought that the God who has all of heaven, all of earth to worship him, earth to govern, and yet, my times, your times, are in his hand. What a comfort that is. Let's just look a little further at the God who has our time in his hands. David describes God and praises him in many ways through the verses I just read. He describes him as a strong rock, a fortress, his strength, a God of truth and mercy, one who knows what troubles he is facing. He praises him for his goodness and the one who hears him when he prays. I just want to focus on three of these quickly uh, in the last few minutes. In verse two, he's described as a strong rock. When I think of a strong rock as something that is immovable, firm, and can be relied upon, you'll all no doubt be familiar with the parable where the wise man built his house upon a rock for these reasons. How it provides a firm foundation and it's dependable. And then in verse three, the next verse, uh, David describes him again as a rock and his fortress. And when I think of a fortress, I think of something that is impenetrable, that cannot be broken into, and can withstand attacks. A verse that comes to mind is in John 10 and 29, where Jesus says that no man can pluck them, that being us that are received out of his father's hand. And then finally, in verse 4, David says that God is his strength. How often we try to do things in our own strength and fail, but yet we have a God that doesn't just... Uh, give us strength but he's our strength i just want to leave you with one last challenge we've seen david's response to the situation he was in and then we've seen the one that he sought refuge from but finally i want to think about what is our reply what would we have done in this situation 
we were in David's uh, shoes, maybe what will reply be? As we find ourselves in another lockdown, what will you put your trust in? I'm reminded of that well-known psalm where some trust in chariots, some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. As I thought personally about it in my own life, uh, and back to the previous lockdown, uh, I was reminded of how I filled my time with other things, Netflix, exercise, maybe didn't uh, backslide as it were, but I didn't grow as a Christian. I stood still. I didn't make use of the full time. I couldn't have said that God was number one in my life. So I suppose I finished with saying, uh, just uh, consider uh, with the next time uh, that you have over this lockdown, how you can use it wisely to grow in your faith. And that we worship the same God that David came before in this chapter. Um, and that's just a, been an encouragement to me. Thank you. Right, so um, I, started, I, th- I think Ross mentioned it there, and I think it went up on Facebook as um, how I survived science. And I'm fully aware that it kind of sounds like I was the result of some sort of government experiment. Um, so if you came for that story, then I'm, I'm sorry to let you down. Uh, it's, it's not quite as exciting as that. Um, but I have always been interested in, in science. I've always asked questions, you know, like where did we come from? What happened to the dinosaurs? How does rain work? Why is the sky blue? And, and whenever you're brought up, as many of you have been in a Christian home and particularly a home where the Bible is the absolute final authority, you're told that the answer to every one of those questions is God. You know, God chose it. God knows it. God controls it. That's the end of the story. But as a young teenager with a curious mind, sometimes the answer God controls it just isn't enough. Uh, I had faith. I was a Christian, but that didn't mean that I didn't still have questions. And I definitely did have questions, and I wanted to have answers as a as a young Christian. I wanted to know that what I believed actually made logical sense. Because if what I was reading in the Bible couldn't answer the basic questions of a fourteen year old, then you know, and, and I I don't know if I ever quite got that far in in thinking that and actually coming to that conclusion, but. Uh, God's timing is absolutely perfect. And, you know, just as I was starting in, in, in my life to come up against some of the big questions, the big conflicts between science and the Bible, you know, evolution, the big bang, the millions of years thing, a friend of mine gave me a book, and I still have it. I want to show you it now. Um, it, it's, it's called And God Said. And it says there in the front, uh, science confirms the authority of the Bible. And I just want to give you a few chapters in it. So, Chapter one, amazing scientific facts. Um, chapter three, creation or evolution. What's all the fuss about? Uh, big bang or big belief. Is life a miracle or did it just happen? Uh, the fossils speak. Is the earth old or young and tired? Uh, scientists with a conscience. There's a bit in there about the amazing ark, the flood, uh, and, and a chapter that says stand up and be counted. Um, now, I'm showing you that because this, this book pretty much changed everything for me. Now, it, I shouldn't have needed a book to give me confidence in the Bible, but I'd never heard some of this stuff before, the kind of things that this book was saying. I was getting hit with messages that seemed to contradict the Bible, and I had no answers for them. I, I was just told that I had to believe it, and I did believe it, but I wanted it to make sense. 
the way my mind works, and I think the way maybe some of your minds work, you know, I, I, I needed to, you know, for me, believing the Bible had to be logical. It had to be the, the logical thing to do. And because of some of those things in the book that I, I'd been given, I began to have a confidence in the Bible that I'd never had before. Now, I know some of you would have heard the message before Christmas. Um, I think Lauren was speaking to you about a surviving school, and I, I was listening to it online around over Christmas. And she talked about the relationship between Paul and Timothy in the New Testament. Well, I think Paul and Timothy asked the kind of questions that I'm talking about. I think they were logical thinkers. They had faith, but things actually made sense to them. And if you read your Bible, if you read the book of Acts, it's full of this kind of logical thinking. In chapter 9, Paul uses evidence to prove that Jesus was the Messiah. In chapter 17, he reasons with the Jews at the synagogue, proving that Jesus needed to die. In chapter 19, he argues about the kingdom of God. And and the thing that struck me was that he didn't just tell them they had to believe. He reasoned with them about why it had to obviously be true, why it was logical. And the book of Romans is exactly the same. It's a whole book written by Paul and it's packed with logic. And it's my favorite book because what Paul does is he is he makes a point and then he argues with it and then he argues back with it. And then he says, okay, well then what then? You know, let's say you're right. Show me that it makes sense. And that's kind of how my mind works. It's kind of the way my mind's always worked. I want things to make sense. And, And honestly, for the first time in my Christian life, all of the claims in the Bible actually made sense. I'd always believed them, but now I actually knew that they were completely logical. And I had a confidence that I could question anything in the Bible and I could be completely sure that there was an answer. And and as a 14-year-old Christian, that makes a massive, massive difference. A few months actually after I got the book and had sort of gone through it all and read it and sort of taken notes on it and stuff, I was at a Christian camp in Edinburgh. And every day we heard about the life of a Christian from history. And the person we heard about that week was Michael Faraday. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard of Michael Faraday, but he's known as the father of electricity. He was basically the first person to figure out that electricity and magnetism were connected and that you could use one to control the other. And because of that, he was able to build the world's first electric generator. But it was the way that he went about it that really stuck with me. You know, lots of smart people for many years have been studying electricity and magnets. They knew that both existed naturally, but nobody had figured out if they were connected. They had all the information, but they just couldn't make sense of it. But Michael Faraday was a Christian. He believed that God made everything. He believed that God had made the magnetic force that went around the earth. He believed that God had made the electric signals that passed through the air. And that everything was ordered and structured and connected because God is ordered and structured and connected to everything. And he believed it so strongly that his entire scientific research was based on it, that God is a God of order. And where nobody else saw a connection between electricity and magnetism, he knew that there was one because his God had made them both. And he was completely right. And he became the first person to harness electricity 
And pretty much every electric generator is based on his principles. All because he believed that God was in control. And that had a huge impact on me as a Christian. See, I, I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to be involved in this kind of scientific research. And to know that this Christian had had an advantage over all the other scientists because he believed in God. For me, that was class. You know, believing in God and science hadn't held him back. It had actually made him better. It had made him a better scientist because he believed in God. And then I found out about others. I found out about Einstein and Newton and Marie Curie and Schrodinger, uh, Galileo, Kepler, Louis Pasteur, Max Planck, Heisenberg, Kelvin. All scientists who believed that the order of the universe was established by God. And because of that, they were able to make some of the most significant scientific discoveries of all time. Now, I don't think they were all Christians, but they all believed in God. And Matthew chapter 6, verse 33 says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. Now, that verse is specifically about what we eat and what we drink and what we wear. Your heavenly father knows your needs, it says. You don't have to worry about them. Seek the things of God and let him work out everything else. But the everything else, that applies to more than just your food and your clothes. Seek first the things of God in in your school life, in your work, in your family, in your difficulties, during lockdown, during exams, doing research, writing scientific papers, making discoveries. It doesn't matter. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be included in what God takes care of. And again, that was a massive thing for me to realize. To find out that so many of the world's greatest minds shared the same belief as I had in God. Like, why why would I even think that God didn't have the answers after I found that out? If you have a Bible with you, take a wee look at, at Psalm 8 in your Bible. Have we look over at Psalm 8? And I, I want to just read out the first four verses of Psalm 8. It's a very well-known psalm. I think certainly parts of it are, are very familiar to people. Psalm 8 verse 1 says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth, who has set thy glory above the heavens. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings hast thou ordained, or, or you have established strength. Because of your enemies. And then in the verse 3. When I consider the heavens. The work of thy fingers. The moon and the stars which thou hast ordained. Which which you have set in place. Then I think. What is man. That thou art mindful of him. Or, or what is man that you would even acknowledge him. Just a little speck. On his creation. You know why would I even think. As a young Christian, why would I even think that other people teaching me science in school, talking about scientific things in TV, why would I even think that that they know more about it than God does? Just didn't make any sense. And these were good people with right intentions and teaching me lots of great things. But when it came to a conflict between what they said and what the Bible said, I knew I was going to believe the Bible. Because the Bible made sense. And I did. I did have a major issue with some of the stuff I was taught in school. 
some of you guys might be the same. And, you know, as I said, I, w- I was pretty inquisitive. I challenged things. I-, I wanted to know how things worked. I wanted to understand. And when I battled with something, like wrestled with something, and I finally got my head around it, it didn't sit well with me whenever I went into school and was told something completely different. And the worst subject for me, anyway, the worst subject for this was geography. Like every single time. Rocks, volcanoes, the river thingies, erosion, all the things that supposedly took thousands and millions of years to come about. Now, as I mentioned earlier, I am a wee bit of a nerd. That's that's just the way it is, just a fact. And one Sunday afternoon, whenever I was young, it was, it was sort of after I was 14, not sure how old it was, but I'd sat down and I'd gone through all the generations in the Bible. Now, you know all the boring lists of names that you get in the Bible? Well, everywhere it said that someone had a son and how old they were, I wrote it down. And for the first 2,000 years of history, you can work out exactly who was alive and when. And after that, you have to work out sort of averages and stuff. But you can basically go all the way from Adam, six days after the world was made, right up to Jesus being born in Bethlehem. And then all you do is you add on around 2,000 years or a little bit more. And you can pretty much work out exactly how old the world is because it's all there in the Bible. And the first time I did this, I got an answer of 5,960 years. And I was able to do it myself. It was right there. Everything was there. It wasn't 10,000. It wasn't 100,000. It wasn't 4.5 billion. It was just under 6,000. And because of the confidence that God had given me in the Bible, I had no problem believing that. And then I'd have to go and I'd have to sit geography tests and exams where I'd be asked to give a, a chronological breakdown of 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 the different geological periods over millions of years. So as a Christian, how was I supposed to handle that? Now, some of you might disagree with this. And some of you might have your own ways of managing that kind of stuff. And I respect that. But I spent a long time wondering what I should do. Was I supposed to take a stand and just write wrong across the paper whenever any of these kind of questions came up? The problem is I wasn't really somebody that put my neck on the line. Like I said, I asked questions, but I asked them in my head. I wasn't going to be the guy that put his hand up and just drew attention to himself. So the decision that I came to was this. And maybe this will help somebody, or maybe you think that I I was wrong to do this. But basically, if I was happy in English to write a big spiel about Macbeth or Hamlet or some other fictional piece of of English literature, then I was more than happy to learn the fictional works of geography. I'd learn them just as pieces of literature. I'd I'd regurgitate them for exams. I'd write the answers that they wanted to hear. I didn't have to believe the textbooks any more than I had to believe Romeo and Juliet was real. They weren't asking for my opinion. If they did, that was different. I'd give it to them. But all that they wanted to know was that I had the mental capacity to remember stuff. So I did. And then I immediately forgot it, like Macbeth and Hamlet and all the rest of them. And in school, that's basically how I survived. That's how I got through. But at university, that was a slightly different story. Now, I'll not take too long to to go through this bit with you, but some of you are there right now. Some of you are at university. 
and and you know how different it is to school. I mean, it, it's so different. The lectures, you know, particularly in science and, and medicine, but also a lot of um, different subjects, the, the lecturers are often top experts in their field. And at university, I was doing physics with astrophysics, and all of our lecturers were real scientists doing research in labs, and it was class, it was brilliant. To be taught by people on the cutting edge of science and then actually to be able to work with them on proposals, writing papers, creating posters, it was brilliant. But as a Christian, I was fully aware that I was basically going two feet into an environment of godless science. This battleground between science and the Bible, and I was going there as one single voice among all these unbelievers, the big bangists, the evolutionists, the old earthers, and then me. But you know something, this might surprise you, but this is a fact. I was there for five years. I did physics, which is basically a study of how the world works. I did astrophysics, which is a study of how the universe works. Five years taught by unbelieving scientists. And I never heard a single thing that made me question the Bible. Not one. And this is the thing about science. And it's the thing a lot of people, I think, don't really get. Real science, which is what those guys were doing. Real science is observing that what we see, observing, first of all, what we see. And then hypothesizing or suggesting why it might be happening. And then doing your best to prove it. That's science. Observing what you see, suggesting why it's happening and then setting out to prove it. Once you prove it, it's fact. You can't deny fact. But until then, it's just a theory. Every genuine scientist knows that the Big Bang is just one theory. It's their best one, but it's just it's still just a theory. And I had no problem talking about it as a theory. But I had theories of my own. And in real, genuine science, my theory, which, which I believe to be 100% true because it was in the Bible, my theory matched perfectly with everything we observed every single time. And folks, I had opportunities that I never had in school to put forward genuine scientific arguments to explain that what we had just observed proved the existence of God. And as long as I was arguing on the strength of the science, just like Faraday, just like Newton, just like Einstein, there was never a problem because it was good science. In fact, one of the best marks I ever got in any paper was one that I wrote in the first year. I proposed that an astro astronomical feature called redshift, some of you might have heard of, I proposed that that was evidence of an immediate and instantaneous creation and spread in one moment out of the universe, in one single instant, rather than the Big Bang that then had an explosion followed by a big slow expansion over many millions of years. And I got my best marks for that paper out of anything that I did in those five years because I went against the theory and proposed something that perfectly matched the facts. 
because the Bible always matches what you see. And people will say that Christians, Ross even referred to it there, people do say that Christians and science don't go together. And a lot of Christians do think that. But what if you're a Christian with a scientific mind? What if you're a Christian that asks questions? What if you're a Christian that believes by faith but also desperately wants it to make sense? And that's where it's really helpful to know that Paul in the Bible thinks like I think. Paul knew the challenges even then of people saying that the big thinkers of this world and the Christians of this world couldn't be the same people. But that's not true. In 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 20, it might be worth turning to that one. 1 Timothy chapter 6 verse 20. Paul says to avoid the oppositions or the contradictions of science. That's sometimes translated as knowledge. You might have it translated there as knowledge. And it is knowledge. But specifically knowledge of how the world works. Which is science. Avoid the contradictions of science. And that's what a lot of Christians will tell you. But that's not what Paul says. Paul says to avoid the contradictions of what is falsely called science. The problem isn't science. The problem is false science. Theories that are stated as facts. Textbooks with blatant lies in them. Nature programs that just spout nonsense. It's not the actual science that's the problem. It's those things. And if God has given you a scientific mind, then embrace it. Be thankful for it because there's things that you will be able to see and understand that nobody else can because you believe in God. And I want to give you one quick example just to finish. And this might go over the top of some people's heads. Some of you might be interested in it. I don't know. But I think it's an interesting example. So Andromeda, you've probably, some of you will have heard of Andromeda, a galaxy that we can see from Earth is 2.5 million light years away. So in theory, that means that light from Andromeda has taken 2.5 million years to get here. Now that's a problem if you believe the world is only 6,000 years old. But the 2.5 million years is based on three assumptions. So firstly, that the speed of light is constant. That's a big one. It's assumed that it is constant. But we already know that the speed of light slows down in water and it slows down when traveling through particles. So it's possible that it's faster in other places. And also we've only been measuring it for a couple of hundred years. So it's possible it used to be a lot faster than it is now. So that's the first assumption. Second assumption is that light began at Andromeda and then traveled all the way here. But we have no idea if that's the case. When God made man, did he make a baby or a fully grown man? He made a fully grown man. So there's no reason why he couldn't have made a fully grown light path that had already reached the earth at the very start. So that's the second assumption. The third assumption is that Andromeda is where it says it is. Now, we know from science that refracted light 
makes objects appear in a slightly different location than where they actually are. If you then add the great distances that we're talking about in space, then we have no idea if Andromeda is where it appears to be. We don't know what the light is traveling through before it actually gets to us. So again, it's possible it's in a completely different location than what we think it is. So there's three assumptions that are made. Nobody can prove those right now. There are three assumptions. And the reason I'm sharing those is because if any one of those assumptions was wrong, it would completely transform the field of astronomy. And as Christians, if we believe the Bible, and if we believe that the world is 6,000 years old, then one of those three assumptions is definitely wrong. So do you see what I'm saying? Most scientists aren't asking that question. They've accepted those three assumptions. So we as Christians already have an advantage because we know something that they don't. And I think that's incredible. And genuinely, I want to say this. It could be one of you guys, if you're interested in scientific things, that becomes the first person to prove that one of those three assumptions is wrong. And in doing that, you would walk in the footsteps of Newton, Faraday and Galileo. You would walk in the footsteps of those who sought first the kingdom of God and all other things were added to them, even in science. So just to finish, I'd like to say, don't be scared to ask questions. Because if the Bible can't stand up to our questions, then the Bible's not what it says it is. So never be afraid to ask questions and never be afraid to challenge what you know. Let me just pray and then I'll hand over back over to Ross. Father, we thank you for um, just blessing us and what we consider, Lord. And we just pray that um, you'd help us just to um, work these things through in our minds, Lord, and to be willing to challenge what you say in your word, Lord, knowing that if it's true, then it'll stand up to every single question that's asked of it. And we pray for any that maybe have interest in these things or that ask a lot of questions, Lord, that you'd encourage them and that you'd help them to find answers in your word, Lord, and not to be going off searching somewhere else and being just constantly disappointed with what they find. So just bless us now in the time that we have left at the end as well. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much for that, Johnny. I think it's it's so important for us to realise that, like, even some of the most notable findings of science throughout history have been by Christians that have shaped the scientific world and that it's ultimately it's studying and observing God's creation. Uh, thank you very much for that, Johnny. Does anybody have any questions for Johnny at all about anything that's been said tonight? Um, or anything at all, to be fair. Johnny's very wise. <laughs> <laughs> that's wrong. Does anyone have any questions they're itching to ask? I've got a question. Can you hear me okay? Oh, John, yeah. my goodness. Hi, John. Hello, I'm hiding. Um, no, my, my phone battery's on 5%, so I think if I turn on the video, I'll not get to the end of my question. Um, Johnny, how you, how would you sort of recommend we deal with Christians that may not agree with us? Yeah. And do you have any kind of parameters for, um, I don't know, you know, it, it is, like, are, are there any, 
Are there any no-go areas, you know, when you're dealing with Christians who maybe disagree? And, and, and it's a great question, John, and, and all, you'll, you'll know as much as I do that, that that's a, a big reality, yeah. Um, I, I think you have to almost approach it scientifically as well. So um, there, there are things that, okay, so for example, um, I, 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 I went through and, and um, I went through and worked out in, in my Bible the age of the earth. Uh, based on certain criteria. Um, some of it you couldn't argue with. It's very, you know, nailed down. There, I, I had to make a few, what I believe were minor assumptions, but they were still assumptions, uh, which were that there were no gaps anywhere that I wasn't accounting for. Um, and also that where I had to take averages, that they were reasonable averages to take. So I have to fully accept that in making those assumptions, somebody else could make an alternative assumption. And that unless I could actually prove that that assumption was correct, then that allows a little bit of, of movement in there. And that's a reality that, that I think you, you, if you're being fair to the science, you also approach the Bible in a scientific way. And you allow, now if, if scripture says something black and white, then I think someone that argues with that, we would be right to challenge them very directly. But where you're making certain assumptions or where there's just maybe just not absolute clarity, will absolutely have to show respect to the fact that somebody may have another assumption underlying that that could um, impact then the, the, how they then would perceive those answers. So, I, 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 yeah, is that fair? Yep, thanks very much. Appreciate it. Good question. Does anyone else have another question at all for Johnny? Johnny, you had um, talked about a book that was helpful to you. Are there maybe any other, um, that book or other books or other online resources even that um, that you'd recommend to help? So, I mean, there, there's a host of them. Um, now, I find the book incredibly useful because of the tone of it. Uh, some of the, I mean, I do personally, I like the Answers in Genesis stuff. I, I know a lot of people don't. So it would be just Answers in Genesis you would search for. A lot of people don't. They don't They don't like the sort of presumptions that they, they make. And But but I do, I personally find that it, it it's um, very scripturally based and there's a lot of scientific knowledge. Um, but again, I mean, even in relation to John's question, that, you know, people would be divided on their opinion of those things as well. I find this one on God said very useful in that it's very, I mean, every chapter is like, you know, three, um, three or four pages. It's nothing extreme. You know, there, there are good graphics, um, that sort of help to sort of visualize it. I was just trying to find, find one there. Um, okay. So there, you know, little things like that there, there's a, a stability analysis of Noah's Ark, you know, little, little graphics like that, that are actually really incredible to sort of see. And I, I, so I like the simplicity of those arguments because what they do is they allow you to go off and examine things yourself rather than, I think, maybe something like Answers in Genesis or other types of that, while brilliant, absolutely brilliant. But if you rely too much on them, you end up, they become your entire Bible and and you don't then actually re- retain your own free thinking. So I, I think, but, but again, Answers in Genesis have some sort of very top level material that I think it's extremely good to just what you want to do is I think you want to give yourself scope to, to, to doubt. And I know that sometimes can scare people, but I think you need to allow yourself a little bit of that because it's only by having it, by seeing it yourself 
are you ever actually going to have confidence in it? But I, th- I think, yes, getting a starting point is essential. And Answers in Genesis is great for that. Creation.com, there's also various other ones that would sort of view things maybe slightly differently. But, you know, it, it, we shouldn't be scared to challenge those those things. 